What you just heard was not the sound of a party gone wrong or the sound of a dance by a warm campfire. It's a bridge. To be precise, you just heard the sound of Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol in England. Well, at least that's how I hear it now after making this podcast episode, that is, after trying to get to know Bristol remotely through the internet, but without using a computer screen. My name is Harsha, and I want to know what things look like online, but refuse to be always glued to my screen in the process. This is the story of my journey to discover how we might have the option to step away from our screen and still feel connected to the visual world that it shows. Since the widespread lockdowns during the COVID-19 pandemic, many of us have been required to work and socialise from home. More than ever before, screen-based interactions defined our online presence, where we worked, played, held parties, met people, loved and took virtual tours. People started complaining about eye strain, sore necks and stiff backs from being sat in front of their computer monitors all day. Others reported the stress and anxiety of having their cameras turned on for long periods of time. The phrase screen fatigue emerged to describe these sensations. I am grateful for this word because it comes close to capturing something that I felt for a long time but have not been able to articulate. I can't see, and yet, like many of you, I am surrounded by screens. My touch typing on a laptop results in text on a monitor. My fingers on a smartphone feel the same glossy display even when they swipe across many different faces. Even my assistive technology is attached to a screen. My screen reader speaks out loud any text on a laptop monitor, but I can't use it to read a paperback or anything that is not digitally displayed on a screen. I am now doing a PhD researching virtual reality, which is 3D computer-generated media content that can only be accessed by having a head-mounted display. Basically, that's a screen mounted on your face. If you're visually impaired, like me, these screen-based visuals present a wall of silence. Now, of course, I am not completely against screens for mediating our online interactions. Video can help to form strong connections, and it can be very helpful for people who need to lip-read or communicate through sign language. I just want to explore what other options we have for staying in touch with the visual world if we can't or won't use a screen. What if you need to step away from your screen to nurse a pain in your back, or even attend to something cooking in the oven, but you just want to know what things look like. My journey away from screens began in autumn 2020, by which time the UK's COVID-19 outbreak was well underway. I was a student based at UCL in London, but my project, 
was about the experiences of Bristol-based artists using virtual reality. Having to work remotely, I got to know Bristol and the communities that I collaborated with from afar through Zoom conversations, social media and virtual reality chat rooms. They introduced me to their gaming headsets, their studios, their city and its landmarks through my computer screen. Actually, it was the spectacular appearance of one landmark about which people consistently waxed lyrical, the Clifton Suspension Bridge. Taking 33 years to design in the 18th century, this Grade 1 listed structure is described as the quote-unquote enduring symbol of Bristol by its custodians, the Clifton Suspension Bridge Trust. Surely, as a remote tourist, I wanted to record the bridge's appearance in a way that I could sense and understand it from a distance. Being unable to communicate through touch, smell or taste online, I turned to sound to capture this visual information and relay it to me and any others who would want to listen with me. This is the sound you might hear if a rainforest appears on your screen. This is the sound you might hear if a nightclub appears on your screen. Of course, sounds are already used to represent places online. Usually, these are the sounds we would expect to hear if we were there in person. But what about details that we generally cannot hear that are often on screen, like colours, diagrams and shadows? Although experiencing visual impairment is completely different from choosing to step away from your screen, my lived experience of sight loss has forced me to engage with technologies that use sound to communicate visual information. A fluffy puppy dozing on the doormat. That is my screen reader speaking the description of an image. These descriptions, which are generally called alt text, need to be written by those who show the image and need to be understood by the audience. I wondered. Could non-verbal sound be used to represent an image? As it happened, I was in luck. Software like Metasynth, Pixelsynth and Photosounder, amongst others, can read images and convert visual data, such as colour, into sonic elements, such as pitch. I started imagining running an image of the Clifton Suspension Bridge through one of these programmes. Ooh, it might sound like a piece of jazz or a gospel choir, I thought. Sadly, the aesthetics could not have been further from my imagination. Even if I could stomach the sounds, I rarely managed to grasp anything meaningful about the bridge from them. Turning to Google for some inspiration, I discovered that the Clifton Suspension Bridge has already been sonified. Wow, yes. A project by Bristol University collected some data about the bridge's movements, monitoring changes to its structure, and then converted this data into sounds that can be played by a harp. 
Another project, led by the artist Di Mainstone, is called The Human Harp, and it took the sound frequencies generated by people using the bridge, and then dancers played these live. The practice of representing data as nonverbal sounds is called data sonification. An everyday example is a clock, which ticks audibly to indicate that a second has passed. Unlike me, these projects were not interested in sonifying how the bridge might look. Instead, they sourced data that could provide online audiences access to other stories about the bridge, perhaps stories which may not be conveyed through an image on screen. This left me questioning, should sonification be only used to inform listening audiences about what is visually displayed on screen? Or should it also tell them about the other off-screen significance of an object? I wanted to explore the potential of sonification with someone who was very familiar with it. My name's Jamie Pereira. I'm a sound artist. I'm also a composer. I like to use sound to deconstruct objects, and that can be could be anything. It could be an orange, <laughs> or, or it could be um, something that's more complex, an object that's made out of lots of different objects. So social issues. I've done maths equations. I'm touring a performance at the moment which sonifies the Anthropocene, which is probably the most complex object I could think of. The Anthropocene is the period of time in which human activity has brought distinct geological change in the environment, and the word anthropogenic is used to describe this human influence on nature. It's peer-reviewed data objects that describe human impact to the earth. So it's not just climate data, but it's also socioeconomic data and also suggested anthropogenic events that are in our timeline over the last 12,000 years. From the intimate to the global, Jamie accesses data about all kinds of objects and makes that data audible. But how do Jamie's data sonifications actually sound? If you were to sonify a car, for instance, which is an object, when you're creating that sonification, does the actual sound of the engine or the sound of doors or the sound of horns, do they inform any part of the sonification? It depends on the purpose. So if your agenda is to represent parts of a car with the very sounds that those parts would make, then that's great, you know. If you were going to represent the car in terms of the amount of pollution that's released into the atmosphere, then you'd be using a very different sound. Often this is a, an exploration. You know, you would, you would start with this abstract idea of, OK, I want to sonify the car. But as you look into the different parts of the object and all of those things have different sources, they have different stories behind them. So you might discover as you're doing that, that you would find a set of data about the car that you think, ah, now this is really interesting. And then at the same time, that might inform the sort of sounds that you might um, use to represent this data from the car. So I would probably, you know, I would always um, roll the ball back to someone and say, well, what what's interesting about the car? I set out on this project kind of wanting to think about the stories that I would find about these objects and kind of bring to the surface. But actually, 
I think it's more my relationship with that object and what I find interesting. Absolutely. There's no such thing as true objectivity. Someone's always got to choose what data they sonify. There's always a kind of agenda behind the type of data that gets chosen. And there's always a perspective or a leaning or an agenda that comes from the person that's doing the interpretation. On that note about motivations, I had my reasons for being interested in audio, and I was curious to learn why Jamie had wanted to work with sound. In his answer, he revisited a powerful moment from his performance of the Anthropocene. I was uh, performing it, and we'd just got to the part where it was uh, an uh, anthropogenic event when the climate was actually changed by the death of natives of Latin America when colonialism arrived. So that's when um, the ships arrived. Um, and it actually caused a different in, difference in the atmosphere. I was actually playing this data and I really felt like, okay, well, this is, this is important to me. It was a way for me to confront and express and experience issues uh, behind some of these uh, abstractions you know climate change is a very very big word you know and and also it's a very difficult uh, concept to break down i'm half um uh chinese malaysian and half sri lankan it was impossible to um to discount the colonial nature of how things have shaped our world there's a, an amazing richness in terms of what you can do with sound. If an object is behind an other, another object, you can't see it because it's behind something. But that doesn't necessarily need, need to be the case with, with sound. I was imagining sonic representation of a coffee mug. And as well as describing the shape of the mug, just say that that mug had a crack in it or it was broken or it was chipped. Sound can also tell the story of why that mug was chipped. You know, it could be uh, the story of how it got dropped. It could be a fight between two people in which it was used. Then came my nagging question. How do I ensure that listeners can actually enjoy my sound-based representations of the visual world? Especially when you start with kind of basic sonification. It seems like aesthetically, it's quite difficult to make the sound as pleasing and as accessible as people are often used to hearing in compositions. How do you choose, I guess, the timbre of your sonifications? Like what, um, how do you choose instruments? Yes, I use acoustic instruments, orchestral instruments, electronic instruments, um, and then I also use relevant sounds. So if it's the, the data trajectory of tropical rainforest decline, it might be the sound of a rainforest getting quieter over time, or even louder, depending on how you want to frame things. And in terms of how, remember, I'm talking about uh, almost like a, a iterative process where you're constantly assessing the quality of the data, not just in terms of the data itself and how kosher it is, but also will this data sound good if I sonify it? And sometimes it's a case of choosing sounds or instrumentations that you know are going to sound a bit more forgiving. Uh, or when you're doing combinations of data threads, you might be choosing a group of uh, sounds or instruments that you know will work together well. In an ideal world, you'd have a, 
a great balance of all of these ingredients, which I actually presented in something that I call the sonification issue sandwich. If I ask you to uh, picture a sandwich, (laughs) a bottom piece of bread, and there's a top piece of bread, and then there's three fillings. And the bottom piece of bread would be agenda. That's uh, your agenda, the agenda of the data, you know, just agenda. And the top bit of bread would be accessibility. And then the three fillings would be narrative, accuracy, and art. So it's about the story we want to tell. Uh, It's about the accuracy of interpretation versus the accessibility of the audience. And then art is the question all the time, where is the meaning coming from? You know, so obviously, you know, you want all those ingredients to be as brilliant as possible for the sandwich. So it's kind of a a metaphor to say all of these things should be born in mind uh, all the time. Obviously, they would develop as you go through this iterative process of doing the work, of doing the sonifying. After listening to Jamie, I felt like the process of sonification could raise so many new questions about an object and its representation. I wanted to ask him how he manages to stay focused on his objectives when all of these other paths of exploration open up. I created a journey through deaths of coronavirus in the UK over the first wave of the um, pandemic. As the work evolved, things changed. Because of these various factors that are involved in, in making, you know, like what sound do you use? What's the source material for the sound? How does the meaning of what you're doing shift uh, with your understanding of the issues behind the data? I moved from very much wanting to make a political point about the lack of um, foresight and also, you know, criminal lack of care with regards to the pandemic to much more of a an appreciation of the human spirit in terms of how individual people had coped. It's always good to have an objective, I I suppose. You've got to have an impetus to create anything. But to stick to that above the process is probably a mistake. I think the process actually dictates where the meaning and the, I suppose, overall work goes. Thanks to Jamie... I allowed my own process, including my learnings about sonification, to reset my inquiry. If I simply sonified the colours in a screenshot, for instance, I wasn't sure that this dataset would convincingly tell audiences about the various significances of an object. I needed data to feed a composition that could simultaneously tell audiences what an object might look like and communicate what different people thought about it. The answer to my search came from the most unexpected source. It arose while my mum and I sat watching TV when she described some scenery unfolding before us. I can see the blue water, loads of people, uh, kids are playing in the water, and then you can see a lot of uh, food, street food kind of shops. Uh, It's not evening yet, but the sky is clear as well. That was my mum, Lalita, describing a scene showing Marina Beach in Chennai, India, which, as it happens, is where my family and I are from. 
The practice of describing out loud is called audio description, and much like textual description or alt text, there is a dependency on words. Yet, after listening to my mum, I realised that these words could be the data I was looking for. As this project has progressed, I have become less interested in accurately converting on-screen content into sound. My focus has shifted towards sonically representing how different people see, so that those of us who have stepped away from the screen can get these different interpretations and an idea of how different people are interacting with the stuff on screen. Descriptions can do that very well. They record how something looks like according to a specific person with specific biases, and therefore how that one describer is relating to that object. The artist Shannon Finnegan has uttered a beautiful call for alt text as poetry, launching a project of that name to ensure that the text accompanying online images is creative and far less neutral. With that in mind, it was time to find some poetic descriptions of the Clifton Suspension Bridge. In doing so, I wanted to draw attention to a group of people who have a rather special relationship with the bridge, the volunteers at the Clifton Suspension Bridge Trust. Could they each send me a line or two describing the bridge in their words? I typed an email to the visitor centre, excited but a little nervous about how my random request might be received. I was pleasantly surprised Descriptions flowed in fast and they seemed so intimate. A suspended road, elegant ballet dancer, graceful, powerful and strong, elegant, Victorian, slightly elderly lady, a beacon of brightness. Instantly, I thought of a ballet dancer, a female voice laughing, a burning beacon. Now you know what inspired those sounds at the beginning of this episode. But how else could sound represent the descriptions of the bridge? I tried to devise a vocal performance of the volunteers' descriptions, and I invited two sound artists to compose their own sonic responses to the text. Coming up, we get together on a Zoom call for a musical potluck, where we share our creations and consider the future of sound in enriching off-screen connections with the visual world. I'm joined by James Burns and Ali Glover, the two sound artists who accepted my invitation. I'll let them introduce themselves. James first. I'm a student at a place called Tyard, which is in London, doing my master's there. Alongside that, I release music and short, minute-long ideas every single day on my Instagram under the name Robinson's Village. And here's Ali. So I'm an artist. I'm also currently like studying my MFA at Goldsmiths as well. I mainly deal with uh, site-determined or site-based interventions and sculptures and installations um, through either my own practice or my practice in my collective. Sound is kind of something that like I've only 
come to in the last like three or four years and it's only had an outlet in like the last couple of years where it's actually I've actually used it in shows as something to facilitate the artwork. I wanted to start by asking my guests what had drawn them to this invitation. I guess I mean it was just a natural curiosity with that maybe test myself a bit more with this idea of using field recordings for a practice and coming like they've always been like something on the side of my practice I actually have something that's like a concrete piece that in itself um kind of drew me to that and as we got to talk about it more it just sounded more and more fascinating this idea of how visuals are built up through sounds in your experience like overall and that's something I'm like just very interested in I'd never really done anything like this before my course is very much based on commercial music just writing straightforward songs instead of something this open-ended I originally was going to do it in a kind of field recording way because that's the kind of way I would typically approach something like this. Um, but then obviously as well, finding out that Ali's doing the um, film recording thing, I wanted to go for something completely different. And that was kind of a nice aspect that really challenged me and I guess drew me further into the project. Before we got stuck into the descriptions and shared our compositions, it felt important to situate ourselves. Although all of us had been on the bridge at least once, we were by no means frequent users. Far from that, we realised that none of us were local to Bristol and were coming at this project as remote tourists. I try to capture how the volunteers are seeing the bridge and how I'm perceiving their perceptions. Awe-inspiring, elegant and strong. To have such a spectacular ravine as the Avon Gorge, so close to the centre of the principal city of the southwest of England, is remarkable. The gorge has steep sides on its eastern face, with quarried faces. On the western side, the gorge has hanging woods of ancient deciduous trees. Thus, the location is spectacular, and the span of a bridge, 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 bridge is terrifying to behold. A visually stunning construction linking the sides of the gorge. Pure, breathtaking geometry. The mighty towers impart a reassuring sense of strength to the structure and the swoop of chains across the gorge are deceptively light. They do their job of supporting the carriageway with both daring and grace. The Clifton Suspension Bridge bridge, 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 is an awesome fusion of engineering and nature. I always describe the bridge bridge, 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 as graceful, powerful and strong, not heavy and clunky. Looking more like an elegant, Victorian, slightly elderly lady. She's tall, streamlined, well-dressed, but with inner strength. Stretching across the gorge like an elegant ballet dancer, the bridge bridge, 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 is simultaneously strong yet delicate. When crossing on a windy day, the bridge, 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 bridge sways beneath your feet like the deck of a ferry. Children love to point out the cars and lorries travelling along the road beneath, the size of toys from our lofty viewpoint. 
adults like to watch the lazy ripples left by boats folding the flat surface of the muddy river. In the summer, the roar of burners on hot air balloons call across the morning sky, and in the autumn, the tall stone towers shine like warm gold at sunset. When the weather gets colder and damper, the trees in the gorge catch wisps of clouds like cobwebs in their branches. At night, it is not possible to walk across the bridge without stopping to enjoy the glow of the city lights in the quiet distance and the cheery sparkles of the bridge illuminations that make spirits soar. Vast, climbing, flowing, tangible, rhythmic structure. You feel its strength as you walk across it. The iron you can hold on to as you navigate the walkway. The wind. The noise of cars to your right. The very slight motion of this massive structure all contribute to a feeling of insignificance in comparison to the solidity beneath your feet. An intact survivor from a different age, a monument to a visionary, a beautiful but expensive vanity project, conceived in the Georgian era, built entirely by muscle power. Peaceful, nostalgic, historic, glowing, serene. A beacon of brightness connecting two cliffs. Chains of light holding a suspended road. Two towers connected by a beautiful beam of light. Yeah, it's great. Really cool. I uh, I really like the uh, the stretched out vocal parts when like it really slows down and it's drawn out. It's really really cool. Yeah, it's really interesting that the fact that you have that reverb or echo on bridge quite regularly, that's quite interesting in terms of it. It it makes it feel, looking down the road, that it's kind of never-ending, kind of really adds to that. It very much sounds like a journey, A, because of, like, how you're going through time with all these descriptions and the history of it, but also, like, there's your breathing in the background as well, which kind of adds to that element of, like, travelling through somewhere. Often, especially when I'm editing, I tend to take out a lot of breath but I think perhaps because the the protagonist in this piece was really the text and the way it was read and I felt like the breath and where we take breath and where we pause it felt like really significant in terms of what we want to emphasize therefore what we're doing in terms of the of the representation and so I really wanted to capture like really exaggerate it and really leave in that breath. And so that's why there's that kind of motif, I guess, kind of going throughout echoes and delays on the bridge as well. People kept saying in the description how, although they perceive it in all these different ways, like a lady, like the deck of a ferry, like a ballet dancer, throughout time, it's kind of stayed the same and it's been a bridge. Then we considered the experience of speaking the descriptions How does my voicing affect the representation of the volunteer's words? Although I 
try to emulate like the excitement in certain phrases. I don't think I make any other effort to get into character. I kept being steered towards reading it in the way that I'd kind of been taught at school, I suppose, in this kind of public reading voice. Despite some of the descriptions seeming quite intimate, I suppose that's what comes with, with voicing that you might not have with other ways of representing something it feels very personal it feels like I'm invading someone's space almost I'm speaking their words so what happens when you take out the human voice and you use non-verbal sounds to represent the descriptions this led us to discussing the two compositions that had been contributed by the artists beginning with James's piece The overall piece, uh, in terms of the song structure, is super busy at the end, at start and super busy at the end, with kind of a section in the middle where um, you have a lot of long, softer notes, creates the image of a, a bridge. For that influence, I looked at the quote, uh, the gorge has steep sides on its eastern face with quarried faces, and on the western side, the gorge was hanging with woods of ancient deciduous trees. The way that I composed this was entirely using my modular synthesizer, which is essentially a electronic instrument that doesn't have, or mine, you can have them with that, but mine doesn't have any, uh, no keys. So it's not like a piano. The way that you play it is um, you have random modules that output voltages that go up and down. And basically these voltages vary and effect other things and essentially the, the resulting outcome is you kind of almost have to patch in and create the sounds that it makes without really trusting in like the traditional way that people make music for piano or an instrument it's really kind of hard to play 
the key thing about the, the modular synthesizer is, is that it doesn't have any screens. It's just entirely a big block of knobs, buttons. And I felt that kind of accompanied the, um, the idea of using descriptive words of the bridge instead of an actual image. The piece itself like, has a really majestic tone to it. It's like very rich and rounded. I guess one visual I had when I was listening to it earlier is also a bit like how, you know, when like, say you're on your Game Boy or like a really old PlayStation game, and you're like traveling through somewhere and then like a big screen would pop up where you're about to travel into. And this in my head, like almost kind of was the music that was going with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know a lot of the sounds in it, I kind of ended up kind of getting drawn to those kind of, not quite harsh, but like having a kind of edge to them that... Um, I guess kind of likens it to those old video game kind of sounds. I kind of was drawn to that because they're so rich with harmonic like textures and stuff that the richness of that, I felt kind of translated to the richness of the bridge. It's interesting to talk about the, or maybe it's not interesting. I find it interesting because it's an observation I noticed as well with like the bridge is how you are, you do with the countryside around it, especially from the other side of the bridge, not as in not the Bristol, well, not the main side of Bristol side, the other side. Is it a nature reserve it's amazing like how balanced that feels. Um, it doesn't feel like out of place with that. It does feel like it kind of works in tandem with that, which, again, I guess relates with you to fading in and out of the piece itself. Talking of the bridge feeling like part of the surrounding landscape, we then moved on to a piece that has location at its heart. Ali's composition was formed by field recordings taken while he visited the bridge. My whole practice in general is roughly like situated in some idea of like phenomenolo- phenomenology, which is loosely defined as like a philosophy of experience. So I guess I'm really interested in the sensation of like moving through like our landscapes and environment and how that feels like socially and politically. So the way I gather materials and sounds is through field recordings, but it's like it's through my own 
interactions with the bridge so it's not just like gathering sounds that are like being played like as cars go past even though it's part of it it's like very much how I'm gonna manipulate those sounds how I'm gonna try and pick those moments out of it I think the way I used the the descriptions that you gave Harsha was um more as I think we spoke about before was like more treating them as someone's habits or the habits of the bridge and how how am I going to coax them out of it so I kind of went through the process of just like going there for the day with a recorder and like would find objects there that I'd like you know tap parts of the bridge to see what resonance they made and I've got all these a variety of recordings of just me doing very strange things of hitting parts of the bridge but um a lot of the bassier notes are actually made through the the cables that run horizontally over the side of the bridge and you can kind of play them like you would play like a bass guitar um so I do the way I'd get that to come through the microphone is to, and changing the pitch of that is by pushing the microphone into the various cables to change the pitch of that, um, pitch of the, what the strings are making. Those bassy sounds at the start, which really, really sick, like that's exactly something that I would yeah love to use in a track or something like that. Like just the idea of pushing it in there to change the note. I was hoping Ali would speak more about his fantastic title title of it is the earth moves away from the moon at the rate your fingernails grow and i'll just wait after reading the descriptions like about the bridge and visiting it like to go in the recordings i guess what stuck with me is how much of like a strong figure that thing is in the landscape yeah it's not incredibly imposing it's kind of working intertwining with that it's kind of always been there it does move but like in very like small ways like as in if you watched it you could see like vibrations of like the undercarriage move or like the bridge um, just moving a little bit every time a car would pass over. And I guess, like, the title does refer to this, like, to observations that you would only kind of notice, like, really meticulously from being in one spot and just looking at something and guess that idea of deep listening. Eventually, our conversation turned to discussing what all of this means for our relationship with the screen. Could sonic compositions representing images persuade us to look away from the screen? Ali suggested how such a shift might need to be helped by a slower pace of life and work. It's hard, isn't it? Because, like, even in downtime, you're, like, watching something. Your eyes are always stimulated. And in terms of sound and audio, it should technically be more capable and, like, adapt to this idea of slowing down. And I don't know whether that's something to do with, like, attention or patience that doesn't allow for that, maybe. James pointed out that compositions like these provided refreshing alternatives to existing solutions for hearing screen-based content, like screen readers with computerised voices. If you had everything in day-to-day life described to you in just like a monotone voice, it does, yeah, take, take you away from like a lot of experiences where I feel like the opportunity to represent something maybe through a composition and through a uh, field recording or something like that just really gives you just the extra layer of immersion I think is so important and the variation as well say if you had three different composers in the same way that we did sonifying one piece is the same way that if you looked at a picture and then had a film and then maybe like an audio version and a book all of the same scenario you get completely different things depending on each different interaction, the more the merrier, the more the more ways you can get in more immersed and finding out more and more. 
The practice of describing images and then sounding these descriptions may never replace screens or ease screen fatigue. However, it does capture different ways in which people interact with the world. If online platforms are going to keep being spaces where we share our experiences, then surely we want to have more tools to share more diverse experiences. Hearing about so many interactions with the bridge remotely, my curiosity had been piqued, and when the UK-wide lockdown lifted, there was only one thing left for me to do. So, this is what our microphones can hear when we are here on the bridge. The bridge has been here looking generally the same since the 19th century, but perhaps the bridge's appearance is constantly made and remade by how people perceive it. Whether a ballet dancer, a Victorian lady or a beacon of light, the bridge can come to hold many different visual meanings for different people. We have been listening to these perceptions. Not what people see, but how they see and how they relate to the bridge. With emerging technology like virtual reality, being all about allowing people to interact with objects in different ways, I think it makes sense to sound out loud how different people are seeing rather than forcing them to agree on what they can see. Before signing off, I just want to say a massive thanks to the team at Caribou Projects for their generous support and patience throughout my creative process. This podcast episode would not have been possible without the generosity of my guests. I am indebted to Jamie, James, Ali, my mum Lalita and the volunteers at the Clifton Suspension Bridge Trust for joining me and for trusting me on this adventure. You will find links and references to these wonderful people and places on the Caribou Project's website. Thank you for listening. This episode was made possible thanks to funding from Arts Council England.